This is Notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon for the 21st Sunday after Pentecost, October 17th, 2021, offered at St. Simon Peter Episcopal Church in Pell City, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, when James and John asked to have the seats to the right and left of Jesus in his glory. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Growing up, I either participated in or at some point presided over the very serious game of calling shotgun when racing to the car. (laughs) Now, when I was particularly young, it was usually a a foot race between my brother and I, and my brother being older could often outpace me to the car, and so I learned early on that the trick to winning a game of shotgun was to call it really early, like just when you know the first inkling you get that you're about to go somewhere, maybe the car's not even in sight, you need to call shotgun or you're going to be outpaced by your older brother. Now, when I was old enough to have my own car, I began to be the presider over this game with my friends in high school, all taking their turns to claim shotgun to be able to sit in that front passenger seat. And I learned once being on the position of the driver that you didn't always want everyone to win the game of shotgun because there were some people that were really bad at sitting in the shotgun seat. Because there's responsibilities when you sit in the shotgun seat, right? You're in charge of the music on the radio then. We listen to music on the radio. There were also tapes involved. Um, You would be responsible for passing out food, like if there was a stop at McDonald's or something like that, making sure everybody got their right order. You also had the really important job on long trips of staying awake to talk to the driver so that they didn't get too tired while they were driving. And so there were friends that were really bad at this. And so occasionally somebody might call shotgun and you might overrule them just because you couldn't sit through like another day of bad music selections or you're gonna be on a really long trip and you needed somebody to stay awake. When we hear this request from James and John, the sons of Zebedee, it reminds me at least a bit of this game that we used to play, right? Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem and James and John are getting the sense that they're about to get to where they're going and now is the time to sort of claim the good seats, right? They want to be seated on the right and left, the place of honor, when Jesus is in his glory. And they know that that is getting close. And so maybe they're not quite as, you know, outspoken as Peter, um, but they decide that this is the time that they're going to call shotgun to try to get a step ahead of the other disciples to get the good seat. Now there's a temptation when we drop ourselves into the story the way we do this morning, right? We're in the middle of sort of a conversation that's been going on 
that it's real easy to kind of look at James and John as here are two people just trying to get the better seats. And for the past couple of weeks, we've been reading through the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John in order. But this morning, if you maybe were paying attention to the verse numbers, we've actually skipped a few verses. We've gone forward in the narrative a little bit from where we were last week. And those verses that are missing are really important for understanding what's happening in our gospel this morning. The missing verses are verses 32 through 34. And they are the third and final and most detailed description that Jesus gives of his passion. Of what is going to happen when they finally reach Jerusalem. Remember, since way back in like the beginning part of chapter 9, I think we've been on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus and the disciples, and now we're getting really close. And so Jesus, for the last time, tells his disciples what is going to happen when they get there. Jesus is literally in front of the crowd, right? And the disciples in the crowd are hanging back because they're getting so close to Jerusalem that the fear that they're feeling about what's going to happen is starting to take over. So they're hanging back and Jesus turns and says, look, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be condemned to death. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged and I'm going to be killed. But in three days, I will rise again. And then James and John, on the heels of this very description of the passion, come forward quickly to say to Jesus, we want to have a front row seat to your glory. Now to me it's interesting, Jesus doesn't shame them for this. He doesn't go like, look guys, you're missing the point because now you're concerned about do you get to sit in the front seat or the back. Instead, he just says to them, you don't understand what you're asking for. But he's not mad that they've asked the question. Now, for us, I think it's helpful to remember that James and John were on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured. They were there with Peter. They have a sense of what Jesus' glory is going to be. They've seen him in dazzling white with Moses and Elijah behind him. And that they know that that has something to do with what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And so when they get to this point, when they realize that they're getting close, that Jesus is getting more and more detailed about what is happening, that is why they think that Jesus' glory is so clear but they don't yet understand that the glory that Jesus is to experience is on the cross. Usually when we encounter these passages that Jesus talks about as death, if you were to open up a Bible and read, there'd be sort of a heading that would say, Jesus foretells his death for the first time. Or some of them will say, this is Jesus's first passion prediction. They sort of present it like Jesus is a fortune teller, like reading a crystal ball and saying, this is what I see is going to happen. But instead, I think, particularly for the Gospel of Mark, this isn't Jesus predicting what's going to happen. This is Jesus giving his mission statement, right? Jesus's mission, the whole reason for his ministry and being here is so that he can give his life freely even though it means dying in a very horrific way 
and rise again. The mission of Jesus is the cross. So when James and John ask Jesus to be seated at his left and right when he is in glory, Jesus doesn't get mad because what Jesus hears in that is James and John's desires to take their share in Jesus' mission, to be leaders in the mission of Christ, even though they don't quite understand what that is. And the other ten get mad because Jesus basically says, you get to be leaders. And they interpret this as that James and John somehow are going to have more power than they do in what is to come. The others get mad because they think in terms of the power the way the world does, right? And Jesus points this out, tries to get them back on mission by saying, look, in the world when you're a leader, you sort of lord the fact that you're a leader over other people, right? You might be a bit arbitrary in what you ask them to do. You make sure that everybody knows that you're the one that's in charge. But, Jesus says, to be a leader... To be a leader in my disciples means that you are going to be a servant of everyone that you meet. To be a leader in the kingdom of God is to be a slave to all. And this is why it's so important to connect what we hear today in this passage back to Jesus' final mission statement about what's to happen in Jerusalem so that we can understand when Jesus says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, that he is explaining the why of him going to Jerusalem to suffer and die and to rise again in three days. For many of us, we hear that word ransom that Jesus talks about. And if you watch a lot of true crime or TV, you might immediately think about sort of a hostage situation, a coerced exchange of money or goods. In the first century Palestine, though, the word ransom was a legal term. It was what you had to pay to free an enslaved person or what you had to pay to cancel debts that might be attached to a person or a piece of property. And so ransom was indeed about releasing someone, but it was not just from like an individual bandit that's taken someone hostage to get money. It was about releasing someone from a system of enslavement or oppression or economic devastation. The common English Bible, instead of saying ransom, translates it as that Jesus came to give his life to liberate many people. And that's Jesus' mission, right? To go to Jerusalem, to die, to rise again, to rance, a ransom for many, to liberate many people from the power of this world, the power that is a system of death dealing and oppression, and the cross is the path to that liberation. All through chapter 10, Jesus is presenting what it means to live a life in the kingdom, how it is different from living a life in the world. So when Jesus says that James and John can have their share of his cup and his baptism, he is saying you can take your place as servants called to offer your life as a ransom, to give your life to serve as a liberator for many people just like I am about to do. Now that's hard stuff. It's a lot harder than playing the game of shotgun wanting to sit in the front seat of the car, 
right? And what we forget about in that children's game of shotgun, it actually dates back to an older period of time where somebody riding shotgun was somebody that rode at the front of a stagecoach with a shotgun to protect the driver from bandits on the road. It was actually one of the most dangerous positions to be in, to ride shotgun. You were at just as much risk as the person driving the carriage. It's a lot safer to be a passenger but to ride shotgun is to take the risk of the journey. And so there's a temptation when we start realizing that Jesus is maybe saying that to follow me means that you're going to have to be uncomfortable, that you're going to put yourself at risk, that we want to put a little distance to that, right? We can talk about this as this is just sort of a historical account of what Jesus was talking about with his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. Surely Jesus doesn't mean for us to do this. We can also talk about the fact we can get really intellectual like we like to do in the Episcopal Church sometime, and we can talk about, well, the Gospel of Mark was written for a particular community that had an apocalyptic eschatology, which means that they thought the end of the world and the coming of the kingdom was really soon. So it makes sense for them to talk about giving their life as a ransom for many. But surely, surely Jesus isn't talking about us right here in Pell City on the 17th day of October in 2021, right? We're not called to ransom our lives for many. Biblical scholar Joel Marcus cautions against putting that much distance between us and this passage. And he says it is helpful to think about who this gospel was written to, this first century community that was clearly a community that worshiped very much like we do, right? What does Jesus talk about? He talks about the cup and he talks about baptism. What do we as Episcopalians talk about all the time? We talk about the cup and the table and we talk about baptism. We enter the church passing the baptismal font to come and share the common cup of communion. And so the biblical scholars will say, if we think about this passage as somehow giving depth to their practice of worship, it maybe helps us understand what it's supposed to mean for us today. The writer of Mark is trying to say what we do in church should affect what we do in the world, right? We come here, we are transformed by baptism, we are fed on the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and what we do in the world needs to look different. And this is sort of the culmination of Jesus' teachings all through chapters 9 and 10 on the way to Jerusalem about what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to have covenantal relationships that you just can't break and throw away, what it means to bless the weak, to welcome children, what it means to not be controlled by material wealth and power, and now what it means to put that all into actions, become servants for liberation of the marginalized, the oppressed, and the broken in this world. That life doesn't require martyrdom, though for some it does, and we celebrate the people that have given their lives for the faith. But it does require for every Christian, every person that takes on the mantle of being a disciple of Christ to enter into a life of service, even when it causes us discomfort, pain, makes us lose friends, lose status in the community. In the Episcopal Church, we've sort of gotten this when it comes to how we talk about baptism. If you think about every time we have a baptism, 
or every time we celebrate one of those big feast days where we renew our baptismal covenant, we will renew the promises that we either made or that were made for us in baptism. And we particularly love like the last two questions, right? You, you go through the Apostles' Creed and then you have these questions where the congregation responds. And the last two questions that really point to us making a promise to live a moral and ethical life different than what the world calls for and what Christ calls for, is we are asked, will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself? Will you strive for justice and peace, respecting the dignity of every human being? And for us, our answers to these questions is different than what James and John says. James and John were pretty bold when Jesus said, can you drink my cup and share in my baptism? And they said, we are able. 2,000 years later, we maybe have a bit more perspective, and we have the perspective of this side of the cross and the resurrection. We boldly proclaim, we will with God's help. We will with God's help live out this life of service in Christ. Now, I think we would do well to remember that on the Sundays when it's not Baptism Sunday, but every Sunday when we come to the altar to receive communion, because remember, Jesus puts the two together. It's the baptism and the shared cup tie us into the moral life of Christ. And so when we come to the altar, we don't just come to have a memory or to memorialize or remember what Christ did for us, but we come to commit ourselves to taking our share in Christ's continuing mission. I think Eucharistic Prayer C, which we sometimes call Star Wars, which has some sort of tricky language here and there, but it does have this great part of its Eucharistic Prayer. It says, deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength, for pardon only and not for renewal. Let the grace of this Holy Communion make us one body, one spirit in Christ, that we may worthily serve the world in his name. And so maybe when we come to receive communion, instead of saying amen when we receive the bread and the wine the way we do, this agreement, right, that this is the body of Christ, amen. This is the blood of Christ, amen. We might do well to think of what we say at baptism when we receive it, we receive it with God's help so that we can remember that to share in the cup of Christ through God's grace and help is to take our share as leaders in the mission of Christ in the world. And so with God's help, we are called again to offer ourselves as servants and to offer our lives to become liberators to those around us even when it is costly and not popular. But in doing that, even when it gets hard, we do so holding fast to the hope and the knowledge that the tomb is still empty and that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Amen.